Uh, my name is Darren Poli. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Outreach Librarian here at Fowley Memorial Library at Villanova University. And on behalf of the entire staff here at the library, we'd like to welcome all of our guests to View Stuff One. <laughs> well, more on that later. Uh, first, before we get started with the initial presentation uh, in terms of the sessions that you're all here to uh, listen to, and we hope that these sessions will be highly interactive, so please uh, be ready and willing and able to ask questions and to interrupt our speakers throughout the day. Um, but first, let me introduce Michael Foyt, who is the head of the Digital Library, and we would like to make a, a quick brief presentation. So if you would... We decided to initiate an award, and the, the award is View Stuff Award, <laughs> very creative name, otherwise known as the Viewy. The 2010 Viewy is going to Sean Martin, scholarly communication librarian, Van Pelt Library, University of Pennsylvania. And the reason, if you would come up please, Sean. If, the reason we're presenting him the, the initial uh, viewee is because he called together academic librarians from the Philadelphia area to discuss ongoing scholarly communication projects with a meeting last spring, <laughs> and thereby becoming a catalyst for what we hope is a sustained conversation about the intersection of scholarship and technology by library professionals and others, educators and others in the region. And so in the future, uh, the award process will actually uh, be incorporated into presenting uh, presenters who come to give talks at future uh, events but this one we wanted to give to Sean in recognition of his his efforts so thank you, thank you. our first speaker today is Joseph Lucia university librarian and library director of Falvey Memorial Library take it away Joe Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to Villanova and to our unfortunately humble facility. I'm, I'm fond of saying that, um, and, and you should contact the university president and say that uh, you agree with me on this, that we have the least adequate library of any university of our stature in North America in terms of the physical facility, but um, we're still doing great things here. And uh, we're very proud of uh, a lot of what we've accomplished in the last few years. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do uh, to lead this off is, is talk about uh, how we got into uh, the stuff we're doing, you know, view stuff being the theme, and, and sort of give you a genealogy of, of um, our involvement with uh, digital technology here at Villanova over my uh, now eight years in my role as director. and. Um, connect it, I hope, in some way that makes sense to what I see as the evolutionary trajectory of libraries, uh, specifically academic libraries, going forward. And um, it's kind of interesting how uh, some things that happen almost by accident become uh, compellingly central to uh, your vision of, 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 of what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. So. Um, one of the things I've been saying for the last probably about five years is that uh, open source initiatives and libraries have um, a very strong shared center of gravity in terms of the 
the intellectual constructs underneath them and in terms of the way in which uh, they operate in their communities to um, facilitate the open circulation of ideas. And so, um, to some degree, I'm going to talk a little bit about open source in that framework, but I'm going to try and broaden it to show you how um, these things on parallel tracks essentially converge to really create uh, a very clear picture of what we should be doing and why we should be doing it. So, the talk is entitled Roots, Trunk, and Branches, and, uh, you know, it's got some, some puns embedded in it in terms of um, software terminology and, and, and other uh, kinds of related uh, activities. But in, in some ways, uh, the real heart of the story is uh, the opportunity that, that I saw when I came to Villanova to build a new platform in the library for technology. And I was given the resources and the um, freedom to do that by the university. And so eight years down the road, we have a fully functioning software development team in this library. Um, probably a larger software development team, I would be willing to bet, than any of a library of our size in the country. We have three full-time software developers. That's all they do. And um, you know, that was achieved not by adding staff positions, but by reallocating vacancies and thinking about what we needed to build in order to have a stake in the future. And so I'm going to try and share with you my thoughts about why that's necessary for libraries and how in some ways we're missing the bus if we're not retooling to do this more broadly in the community of libraries. So here's the question. Is technology really your business? You know, and, and I, do, I do get that from different people in the administration. And in some ways, technology is not the library business. Uh, you know, and, and in some ways, information is not the library business. In fact, I've, I've had an issue for a long time with the, the whole information literacy agenda because I think it narrow, narrows down the picture of what libraries are about. Um, you know, from from my view, academic libraries. Public libraries, I think, have uh, zones of overlap with us, but also other areas of concern. But academic libraries are really about um, maintaining the knowledge commons for their communities, and then the various ways in which access to that knowledge commons um, is provided relates to our services and the kinds of um, instructional activities and other things we do. But I think we need to look very clearly at what is unique about uh, what libraries do as social and cultural institutions relative to the other institutions on the landscape. And unless we can articulate that uniqueness in ways that it, um, in fact are portable from the physical environment that we're in here to the digital environment, we have no future, period. The game is over. You look at what is happening with the transformation of many, many industries in networked and the network digital information environment. There are games that are over, all over the map. And our game could be over too if we don't understand what game we're in. And so that's one of the reasons why I think building these tools and participating in um, 
the construction of core infrastructure is really important. And that's not to say I think books are going away, but they're changing faster than many of us would have asserted a couple years ago. I've read more books this year on my Kindle and my iPad than I've read from physical copies. Um, I still have some issues with electronic reading, but the world is clearly changing and the world of the book is clearly changing. And the way in which scholarship is practiced and the way in which knowledge dissemination is practiced and knowledge recording are changing. And for all of the changing we've done in libraries, I don't think we've changed fast enough collectively to be where we need to be. Now, I, th I think that the state of libraries is a lagging indicator of the environment because of the massive inertia of physical collections. So we're in a different business than building technology, but technology is a fundamental enabler for what we do. So that gets to the question of what are library core values. And um, <coughs> a distinction I like to make is, is the infrastructure the means by which you accomplish what you need to do or is the infrastructure your mission itself? And I think there's a really interesting puzzle here for not just individual libraries, really, but for the library community. And I'll give you an example of what I mean when I say that. Um, and it relates specifically to OCLC. Um, our big collaborative accomplishment in the world of libraries from the 1970s to the early 2000s was the building of, in North America, was the, in the building of this, this massive union catalog off which hung all this information about our library holdings. It enabled us to do the core mission, share knowledge without boundaries between our institutions. That notion of keeping the intellectual commons, the knowledge commons, transparently open to all of our constituents. So that's infrastructure built collaboratively by libraries. And then OCLC starts asserting various kinds of funny ownership claims around it um, that raise very real questions about what is the collective resource of libraries and how do we understand who owns the things we built together. And this is one of the things that has really triggered my increasingly intense commitment to the idea that there is a place where infrastructure should be mission for libraries in the community as a whole, which is in building that shared resource and making sure it remains open and non-proprietary, um, which is one of the reasons I've become an open source evangelist. Because I think that, and I have, you know, this is an aside, but I have very real concerns about the possible success of OCLC's web scale library management system because I think they want to appropriate the entire environment into a proprietary framework. And we should collectively be building an alternative set of tools that we build and that we foster and that we protect and that we um, extend into the future, which is why we need technologists in libraries. One of the things I said a number of years ago on one of the open source library discussion lists was imagine if the 200 biggest libraries in the country decided to hire two software developers 
to work on open source and put all of their efforts into building tools for libraries. There'd be 400 full-time developers working on library applications instantly in the environment. Way more than the cohort that exists in any single commercial enterprise and probably 10 times the number that work at OCLC right now. And we could do that by collectively thinking about and reallocating our resources. And if we don't, as a community, 10 years from now, we're going to regret it. So my core commitment comes down to a very simple concept of keeping libraries open. And I mean that as a pun both ways. Keeping our doors open, keeping our physical environments alive because they serve very real purposes in their communities. But they are at risk because of the information environment in the digital world. And for me, ideologically, that means the word open is very important across a range of environments. And I, um, I, I have a talk I've given a number of times um, that has this pun buried in it, from open stacks to open source. And the ideology of the open stacks, that anyone can walk in and <coughs> troll through the shelves and find what they're interested in without restrictions, without barriers, without cost, is fundamentally, to me, portable to the ideology of the open source environment. But it's not just open source. It's open stacks, open standards, open access, open data, by which I mean APIs to anything we license that allows us to do what we need to do with those things that are fully documented and fully exposed, and then open source. So I want to think about resource sharing beyond just sending materials around. I want to think about resource sharing as um, pooling our collective human and intellectual resources to build together new tools and new infrastructure so that the library community will be the real owners collectively of that project in a way that doesn't allow even a single large supposedly philanthropic nonprofit ent entity to assert its control of it. Which means a much more molecular, distributed kind of collaboration than centralized collaboration through a single large entity. But so how do we do this? Well, I think you, know, you need to know what you need. You need to have a clear picture of what the problems are that you face. Um, you need to be able to think clearly enough to define the solution. Um, and then when you get to that point when you can do that, and I think Olay is an interesting example, Project Olay, uh, fun funded by the, the Mellon Project, and I mention it because I see um, two former colleagues from Lehigh here, and they're involved in Olay, and they're doing interesting work on that project of knowing what they need and defining the solution as a collective enterprise, and then sharing the cost to build the tools, thereby when, the, when things are ready to go, sharing the benefits with the broader community, and shaping the overall environment for libraries for the common goals that, that we all have. So that, uh, that is a different way of coming at what we mean by resource sharing. It broadens it beyond collections and information and really makes it about a large-scale agenda um, related to the intellectual work and the infrastructure work within libraries. So here's what I'm going to go into the more um, local story, what I call the accidental software shop. Um, so when I, when I came to Villanova in 2002, um, we didn't have a 
high-functioning, um, flexible technology environment. We had an environment that was probably typical of a lot of medium-sized libraries where things generally worked and did what they needed to do, but it wasn't driven by vision. It wasn't driven by a sense of urgency about how the tools related to mission. Um, and it wasn't very open to participation more broadly in the organization. And I knew that we needed to have a different approach. And so I decided to create, through some vacancies, uh, what I call the technology development position. And we went through a search process, and we hired our first <coughs> software developer. Um, some of you knew him, Andrew Nagy. He was here for a number of years, um, was the original developer of what became the skeleton of Viewfind. I say it's a skeleton because Viewfind is a much more sophisticated tool now than it was when he left. And then he went off and worked for a Serial Solutions, where he's still working. But um, having Andrew here provided capacity to do, to do things and to solve problems, starting with small local problems and beginning from beyond that to scale up. So um, what, what I've learned is that when you take um, your human resources and reshape them in that way, uh, what I call small opportunities open previously unanticipated new doors. So um, Andrew was here for a, I don't know how long it was. It wasn't quite a year maybe. And um, he'd been working on a number of small projects. You know, he, he built a uh, statistics repository for us and some other simple tools and, and was doing a number of things like that. And we were approached by um, the, the Augustinian Institute. Villanova is um, run by the Augustinian Friars. And um, that is a, um, a religious order with a very deep history. Depending on how you trace it, it, it potentially goes all the way back to St. Augustine in the 4th century. But at a minimum, the order as it's currently constituted goes back to the 10th century um, uh, with clearer roots to the 13th century. The order has been an intellectual order for a very long time. They're scholars, mostly. Um, it's a small order, much smaller than Jesuits. But they're very concerned with their own history and their own history as intellectuals. Let me give you an example of probably the most well-known um, Augustinian um, intellectual would be Gregor Mendel. Um, so, but he's in many ways characteristic of the kind of enterprise that many of the Augustinian scholars have engaged in. They've been real scientists, real thinkers. Um, and so the Augustinian Institute, which focuses on the legacy of the order and the intellectual mission of the order, came to us there and said, uh, we've got this bibliography that was done you know, in the 50s and 60s in print form of scholarship on Augustine that w that's not online and we'd like to bring it online. And we also would like to take the material that's kind of been um, accumulating since that bibliography from the 60s to now and get it in a big database and make a searchable database. And we'd like to do it so that anyone who wants to use it can use it. And so I got Andrew together with a couple other people and, and um, some Augustinians came over from, from Europe and we sat down for several days and sort of talked through what this would look like and um, you know actually had some fairly uh, low-level technical conversations about you know very specifically what the data needs were and how what the use case was and went through all that kind of stuff and Andrew said okay I think we can do this and um, it took us a you know, oh, I don't know how long precisely, because I didn't go back and look at the timeline, but I know there is a timeline that you're going to see later. Uh, about 
six to eight months to actually have a basic framework built. So we built this um, bibliographic search engine uh, out of simple open source tools. And uh, the, what, the, the collaborative aspect of the project was that the material, the bibliography in its, um, well, uh, it's around in libraries, but the, the, the source of the bibliography was in a, um, a historical institute in Belgium where all the materials that were used to build the bibliography were also located. So we, we established a contract with the Belgian um, uh, province of the Augustinians and they actually hired grad students from the uh, Louvain University and they literally you know transcribed into our database I don't know somewhere between 40 and 60,000 bibliographic entries but in a fairly complex taxonomic form it wasn't just simple put in bibliographic data um, because they also had this um, interesting subject hierarchy that they wanted to build browsability around so the point of this is that Andrew is here and he solved a fairly complicated bibliographic database problem as, as part of a small local project, laying the foundation for a couple of other things that subsequently happened. So um, we're into this bibliography project maybe 18 months or so, maybe a little over a year, 14 months, and um, the Endeka catalog at um, North Carolina State comes up. And uh, how many of you remember when that first came up? So this faceted browsing thing, which is very cool and really, re it, it becomes the kind of prototype of what we now call discovery layers. And we looked at it and we thought, wow, this is really cool. <coughs> so we made, so Andrew, I said, Andrew, find out how this was done. Mm -hmm. So he went off for a couple days and he found out it was built on the Indeca software and he made some phone calls and he came back and he said, um, the software that it's built from would cost us $250,000. He actually got a quote from Indeca for our collection. And, and, and then he said, but I think we could do it ourselves with some pretty simple tools I found. So I said, all right, go try it. See what happens. And I don't know, about a month later, he comes back and he says, I want to show you what we did. And he had a working skeleton of what became Viewfind, built around Lucene and Solar, which are open source indexing tools, faceted browsing tools. Um, so, and, under, and the reason he was able to do it so fast was because underlying the conceptual framework for, for Viewfind was the, the database model that he developed for the bibliography. So the two, he'd already gotten to a point where he was ready to think about this in a fairly um, quick and sort of predefined way. So, uh, you know, the, the small local project provided us with a toolkit and a skill set to um, scale that up. And so now we have a couple of interesting tools. And uh, we're thinking like everyone is, well, how do we also represent the intellectual work of our community um, in, a, in you know, what we call institutional repositories and, and other kinds of um, similar environments? And since we had this bibliography software, my idea was, well, let's just use that. And let's, let's approach it differently than um, going out and asking faculty to give us their stuff. Let's, build, let's attempt to build a bibliography of, of the university's intellectual output 
represent the output in the bibliography, and then seek out and integrate into um, the local digital collection digital instances of the items represented in the bibliography. And we're still engaged in that project. It's a grandiose project. I mean, in some ways, my, my, my crazy idea, and it's shared by some of my colleagues, is that we will go back to 1842 and map the, the entire intellectual footprint of Villanova over time and try to create a digital collection insofar as it's possible that does that. Now, that's a crazy idea, but it gives us something to do. <laughs> okay, so we did that, and then that went forward, and, uh, and obviously we re released, released Viewfind, I think it was in the summer of 2007 that the pre-alpha, earliest release went out and uh, made some splashes, and it got some momentum, and we held meetings at uh, midwinter, and, uh, you know, we, we actually just kind of slowly built a community that um, quite naturally evolved in, into um, now a fairly active international community of libraries using and uh, in many cases enhancing or extending Viewfind. I believe we had a meeting here um, about a month ago. We called it the Viewfind 2.0 Summit where we actually talked about what the second generation is going to look like and we also talked about the governance and organizational challenges for running this project as it matures and scales up. So that project is, is freestanding and ongoing, and the Viewfind is running in 12 countries. And we have partners in, you know, in Europe that are doing a lot of work. And we're, we, in, we envision that you know, as, as going forward to become, you know, to be a real core tool for a lot of libraries. So we did that, and then we, we started also um, building local digital collections. And the interesting thing about building a digital library, and many of you know this, is that the software alternatives that are out there are, are not huge and varied in number. And um, they, there's Content DM in the commercial space, which works. Um, I'm going to blank on other tools. I don't know if Greenstone's still a going thing or not. Um, Greenstone had a lot of problems in terms of, I think, the way it was built. But it, it, it was an open source alternative. Um, some of the library vendors provide their own solutions. Uh, but it's still not an environment where there are a lot of um, great choices. And we were not wholly satisfied with Content DM or any other path at the time. So, so again, we said, well, let's see if we can come up with a framework that uh, will do what we need to do. Um, the other problem was that Fedora mm -hmm. is a very complicated thing to implement. And we, we looked at Fedora and we said, geez, you know, it's going to take us forever to do a full-scale Fedora architecture. Could we do something simpler that gets us where we need to go? And um, once again, Andrew and a graduate student, and eventually Dave Lacey, who's here, who was hired just as Andrew was leaving, actually to help develop the digital library infrastructure. Um, and now um, other staff here are working on uh, continuing to uh, refine, in some ways, rebuild um, and uh, standardize the framework. But So we built a tool to, to house our digital uh, materials that we are intending to release as another open source um, initiative uh, officially at the upcoming ACRL meeting. Um, and I think one of the big questions we, we, I still have about that is how does what we're building relate to um, the, st 
the standard architecture that's out there now in Fedora. You know, and there's also DSpace is the other. I was that's what I was. Yeah. You know, D, a lot of people are using DSpace. The problem is what DSpace was designed for is not really what digital libraries need to do. And the real power of what we're, what we what we think the real power of our digital library is going to be is that you're going to be able to stick viewfind on top of it and it will become your common search engine for everything on both sides including all of the OCR text. Um, so it'll be a search environment that sits as a component on top of the digital library and be a fully integrated information discovery framework for, for libraries. And, um, and we hope, you know, I don't know what kind of uptake it'll get. I hope there's some interest in it. I think that's a different kind of environment than, than the discovery environment was when ViewFind came out, but at least it'll be a tool that we can put out there and it'll be uh, potentially usable uh, by other libraries. So that's the story I wanted to tell. Um, I, I th probably went over my time, uh, so maybe we can hold questions and get to the next uh, presenter. I wanted to talk just a moment about um, view stuff. And um, as you see there, we're being taped, um, videoed, and while we hope that this will be a viral presentation that everyone in the world will look at in the library information community, <laughs> at least it may be communicable. <laughs> communicable. Um, and some people may and some people may may find this of value. Um, this is view stuff one. Roman numeral one. And this is, in a way, the Villanova story, since all the presenters are from Villanova University. Mm -hmm. Our hope here is that View Stuff 2 will actually be a shared presentation with invitations sent uh, to all of you as participants currently, uh, that we will solicit contributions um, from others <coughs> to tell their story and show their stuff, view their stuff next year around the same time. The Viewy award um, we will be awarding next year as well too. We'll be developing a website that will include the full text, the videos of these presentations, as well as um, opportunities uh, for uh, you and others to contribute. Um, and we're also asking, and Darren will be providing a sheet a little bit um, later on, um, about some of the characteristics and types of presentations that we would like to have at View Stuff 2. Um, so you'll hear a little bit about view stuff. We're also asking for participants in, of course, the labor that goes into creating view stuff for future years. So uh, members that might be interested in serving in a programming committee and also an awards committee uh, so that you can actually get involved in awarding view stuff to the award. So my intent is that um, you will literally be shocked and or electrified <laughs> with this presentation one way or the other. Um, the first part of this um, presentation, or the three parts of this, the first part, of course, is to describe the atmosphere and environment that we have at Villanova. Um, the second part is to describe and go over the digital library and um, the permutations of digital library activities, and the third part are some personal reflections on um, the state of um, scholarship in um, the book, and uh, hopefully that'll go pretty fast. Um, so, with the, with the um, accusation that I might be caught 
uh, as a flatterer, uh, we caught, um, say, uh, red-panted. Um, I'm going to talk with my boss in the room here a little bit about uh, the reorganization and the environment here. Yeah, you got to wear, you got to dress in costume to be able to get the joke right. Okay, so one of the first things Joe did after a period of um, surveying the staff and looking at the environment when he arrived was to or reorganize the library into multiple teams. And as you can see here, we've got our multiple teams with various different activities. The multiple teams actually um, comprise um, an interesting uh, structure we call the matrix. And um, Joe solicited comments uh, about the organization itself and were committed to a climate of openness and thinking outside the box. This matrix structure has a number of um, interesting facets. Uh, essentially, all staff members are, serve on multiple teams in the environment. Uh, there's cross-training throughout the environment. Um, the innovative staffing uh, comes from uh, everyone wearing multiple hats. Essentially, um, while Joe said earlier, uh, our programming staff are only on one team. That's not necessarily correct. Um, Dave Lacey, for example, volunteers at the information desk answering informational questions. Um, as do other staff members. Um, so we have public team access uh, through a liaison, robust liaison program, as well as um, working in back office operations. Um, the cross training of staff really um, allows a lot of variability in um, times when we might have slack activity or when we might have um, uh, sort of an all hands on deck uh, time when we all have to get together and work on the same project. So it's um, it's been fairly well received and, uh, of course, does create um, its own challenges in a, a matrix structure. If you have your staff on a lot of teams, you have a lot of team meetings to go to. Coupled with this, Joe also rolled out a very flexible scheduling policy, which I might add has now become the model for the entire Valenova University. Um, we've uh, started a telecommuting project here where we can telecommute to work as well as a flexible four-day work schedule. So these kind of work rules, uh, coupled with uh, input, coupled with variable team activity, have created a climate of openness uh, where uh, innovation is, um, is actually appreciated. Another thing that Joe has done is not just hired library science people. Um, as you can tell, there's a man following a cat here, as well as devils. This is just, uh, and clowns, of course. This is just symbolic that he has looked beyond the MLS as the minimum qualification. Um, and that's very important. We've got staff members that have multiple master's degrees in areas beyond uh, library science or in, uh, in other information professions, such as museum studies, um, history, uh, instructional design, um, we don't view the MLS here as necessarily the best fit depending upon that skill set that is required for that particular job. If all of you might take a look at your program with the incredibly innovative fold-out timeline, we have a professional graphic designer here, Joanne Quinn. 
So we have professional staff here that are not just librarians, and we find that that is very important to get those kind of talents as part of the library staff. Um, we've had web developers that come from graphics design backgrounds that are um, colleagues and professionals, similar professionals, to the librarians on staff. And so having a wider, um, deeper view of libraries than just an MLS um, is an important characteristic of the successes that you're going to see today. Um, and uh, another thing that Joe has done is allowed, just like Google, time for self-determined projects. So individuals can select projects to work on themselves, self-initiated. Individual goals as well as team goals allows individual participation. Um, and that's very, very important in motivating people to come up with their own, um, own areas of interest and uh, fostering creativity. So he's reduced the hierarchy here and strengthened participation, as you can tell by the linked mitten men. <laughs> Creating a happier and more creative smiley face staff um, that can sometimes work at night from home. I couldn't find a burning silo. Yeah. Or silos, it's a burning wall. Um, you know, um, reaching out to touch from virtual and physical collections and uh, always answering our emails. Uh, this was actually done, uh, the heavy lifting on this uh, was done um, already in a uh, Pennsylvania Library annual conference presentation. Uh, by Merle Stein and Susan Markley called All Hands on Deck. Uh, that is not available on the web right now. For access, um, you can email Merle and he will provide a copy of that presentation for you um, to learn some um, of these additional um, environmental clues as to how success can be achieved in a modern library. All of this has been stressing technological innovation. But let me also just mention a couple of other things, too. Ha. The climate is not just technological. Joe has got us involved, and staff members here have gotten involved in the One Book Villanova program, whereby the entire community, the entire university, reads the same book. Outreach has been involved in that as well, too. We have uh, here the creative um, experiment uh, uh, that was tried, uh, where we actually go on the student um, student uh, radio network and uh, have a presentation uh, reference hour with Villanova staff members that highlight reference works as well as play interesting uh, music. So we're involved with student activities as well too. The entire first floor renovation that was done was all done out of library operating expenses. This was not a separate project and it was all done into a, a very creative environment uh, where participation was solicited from all staff members as to what that floor would look like and the activities that would go on there in creation of a one-service shopping desk. An innovative freshman library orientation program. Um, a robust um, events calendar uh, where the, uh, the room that we'll be meeting in uh, this afternoon is used by the entire community uh, for library-sponsored events. Again, you can see some of the graphic posters downstairs that show how uh, the library is supporting um, community activities throughout the campus. Uh, a communications newsletter that goes out to other libraries and constituencies as well as a, a really uh, strong library homepage that has continually refreshed content uh, from blogs, from contributions from all library staff members. So these are just a few of the non-technology initiatives that have come under Joe Lucian's watch here at Villanova, primarily because of the creativity that he's inspired in all of us.
And that'll be a 2% increase in my salary this year. Yeah. That right, yeah. I did not ask Michael to say this. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know he was going to. Okay. Ah, the cross-pollination. Here we go, the bees. Uh, examples, that's the community bibliography, where it's not just a scholarly uh, bibliography, where we've actually gone out and we're looking at um, the broader community, the Augustinians, the uh, alumni, alumnus network, uh, the journal publishing. All of those were original digital library uh, initiatives that we have other teams working on now, primarily. So we're actually cross-pollinating within the teams of the library, and our library team share projects and work on projects together. So again, we burn down the silos, not just between um, the communities, but also between the individual teams here. Okay, so much for the hooky graphics. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit more about digital libraries, unless I have any questions on the, um, the environment and the privilege that we have to, to actually work under Joe. <laughs> <laughs> You're really embarrassing. Good, that's the intent. Okay. Um, this is the primary um, digital library portal. Um, we do have an option here to do keyword searching. We have a very nice spinner rack, and I, I've chosen to do screen caps instead of live, um, just so I don't want any um, fade-outs um, or interruptions. Uh, one, one really interesting part about this is we do have a WordPress blog that runs in the background and the most recent articles are always put up here uh, to market um, news stories. So that's a, a really important feature. Once we actually go down and look at the collections, we have collections that mirror some of our special collections and uh, we also have independent standing alone um, collections. An example of one here that would be very important to the community is contributions from Augustinian theologians and scholars. Um, Uh, we have a lot of Villanova-specific information in this Villanova digital collection. Uh, sort of the underlying theme of the digital library software is to combine both an institutional repository and digital library software in the same kind of architecture. Um, underneath the, uh, the collections, we have nested collections, and so this is the Villanova digital collection. And uh, Faculty full text. We're also uh, involved in a uh, scanning project uh, for graduate, undergraduate theses and awards that happen on campus. And we're, I believe, in 1935 now, scanning and moving forward. But our faculty full text. We're actually putting up content uh, by faculty members' names. And so this is the institutional repository piece here. And Aaron Bauer. Uh, these are his collections of his materials. Um, and we're mounting those and scanning those. Some of that's born con digital content, and some of that, of course, we're scanning internally. And that is a scan as an access item, and this is an example of a PDF. Uh, we do have rights management material. Um, so we are, um, this is behind the firewall, so you would only get uh, the metadata if you were looking at this off campus or you were not um, under, uh, behind our firewall. Okay, we're back up at the top here again. This is our Catholica collection, and we do put uh, various different sub-collections here, and um, let me just mention we do have a variety of partnerships with other institutions. Uh, we have developed these partnerships to expand our uh, collections and the amount and scope of material that we have accessible. Um, we have active partnerships with a number of different institutions. We're displaying right here the American Catholic Historical Society's materials. Underneath that, we have their historic papers. 
Uh, we've scanned newspapers and, of course, their journal of record called the Records. Um, one collection, the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, quite interesting on the uh, um, invasion of Canada by um, Irish soldiers at the end of the American Civil War. Other materials here, the Molly Maguires, the Philadelphia riots, uh, scrapbooks, uncollected papers. And this is an example of one of the uncollected papers, and also it's one of those connections that I mentioned in the, uh, in the title of this. This is a letter to Captain John Barry from Trench Cox. Uh, this is um, an interesting item. Um, we have a partnership with the Independent Seaport Museum to scan the Barry Hayes collection of materials. So we're getting access to Barry Hayes materials. However, um, upon uh, working with our partner and uh, at the Archdiocesan Archives, a letter to John Barry that was on accession was found, um, and of course, within um, a few minutes of it coming into the library, it was scanned and we did metadata on it and made it accessible. So from total obscurity to total ubiquity and access within the space of a few minutes. And then, of course, after we got it, because it's not uh, something you can machine OCR, we have an ongoing transcription project. Uh, one of our staff members actually transcribed the letter. And um, you can see within your uh, their packet of information, um, Susan Odignan, who's one of our part-time uh, digital library um, staff members, um, part-time in that Part, only part of her percentage of her activities are in digital libraries. She transcribed the letter, um, and we make, we'll be making the transcription available online. Um, we have a very innovative Zoom feature, which allows us to go in and Zoom and, of course, move around. Um, we scan all of these materials at DLF standards at 600 DPI. We provide access to all of the files online, so you can go in and save these materials and do with them what you like. Um, uh, the transcriptions are uh, multiple uh, uses. We want to uh, use as a tool to populate our index so we can do keyword searching on those letters. We're also producing, as you can see there, a lightly annotated scholarly version uh, for readability. And also we go back once the transcription has been done and use that to enhance subject access to the letter by recataloging the letter and assigning subject headings or descriptors uh, from the subjects uh, that are apparent once it's readable. More, we're up at the top of the digital library. Do a keyword search for Santa, and we can see a variety of letters to Santa. So, this is demonstrating our search. Okay. Dear Santy, please bring me a rifle, a pen knife, and a Kodak. Your loving friend, Lex Takara. This is from the Sherman Takara collection. Uh, so, not only is it demonstrating, uh, you know, you get quite interesting content that ranges uh, in collections from uh, children to adults, but wouldn't this make a wonderful addition to a holiday display if one was going to do an exhibit to market this particular letter? We assess and analyze all of our activities as well. We have our um, digital library set up with Google Analytics, so we get reports every week as to what's going on, what's used most frequently. Um, our user base varies depending upon the, 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 the time of the semester. A lot of campus use, of course, um, happens during the regular semester. In the summer, uh, we have a little bit less activity. We have three to 700 independent users per week. Now, let me just tell you, special collections, it's lucky if we have three or four users per week. So, uh, 
This is a way to get a tremendous amount of activity and use of materials that are not getting that same kind of use to a worldwide clientele um, that <coughs> use and cite your material. So you might ask, well, what's the most used, given that we have you know, Augustinian Catholic heritage here, we're digitizing a lot of Catholic materials, and you would be quite surprised. When you make things available in community, the things that get used are perhaps not what you consider the most used book consistently over time is the Portrait Gallery of Pugilists of America and their contemporaries, published by the Pugilistic Publishing Company, lots of P's, 1894 in Philadelphia. And it's a boxing book, quite interesting. The second is a locomotive catalog, and of course if you were a plutocrat and uh, you wanted to order your own locomotive engine, this would be certainly something that you could uh, peruse from your Pullman car um, as you were going across America. And um, um, of course this is from the Baldwin Locomotive Works, and we're the only holder of that, I believe. In print, of course, electronically, everyone uses it, and uh, you know, if you do a, a search on Google, a lot of train aficionados that want access to photographs from early trains, uh, and you can see why it would get used so much. Well, lesson here is you can't anticipate either the patrons, the patron location in the world, or the use of the materials. So providing the richest content and metadata description is key to the most use. So you want to make sure you describe it. Just because you might have a particular item that no one uses, don't think that it's not going to be of use, because a lot of people might find it of value. Don't anticipate the scholarly use. We do, as you have seen, access scanning for some of the Villanova materials. We also do preservation scanning. We fully describe uh, the material with um, subject headings, uh, name authorities. Uh, there's our Santa Claus correspondence, Christmas correspondence from the Santa Claus letter. We do license and make available almost all of our content, with the exception of the things that are just Villanova community <coughs> kind of material, like the theses. Under Creative Commons license, all of the materials from all of our partners are all licensed under Creative Commons license. Again, Joe mentioned the open, um, open content. This is an example of where we're contributing to the open content here. And, uh, uh, through partnership with us, our, our partners are as well, too. Um, I, I, an example of something that is used uh, that is uh, a commercial use, we actually had someone um, ask us for, and again, they don't need to, they can just go in and uh, use the, the license themselves and, and attribute it to us, but wanted to use the cover of an Abbey Theater program um, for a poster in an Irish bar in Shanghai, China. <laughs> commercial use, yes. At the bottom of that poster is an, attributed, an attribution to the Lenovo University in a bar in Shanghai, China. <laughs> Discovery, worldwide use of something really cool. So, ha, cataloging, maybe copy cataloging is of decreased importance, but cataloging of original material is of increased importance. We're scanning archival collections, uh, the, names the name authorities of all of these are almost all being constructed. Uh, cataloging is actually of more importance. We have many of our um, part-time participants in the digital library, our, our fractional participants, our catalogers that are spending 5, 10, 15 percent of their time, maybe a day or a couple hours a week, working in the digital library doing original cataloging on digital items. Um, so that's very important. Um, there's one way that you can occupy staff with professional activities uh, that are valuable to the community. Um, 
some discussion on the future of cataloging is on uh, the um, the local uh, AFSCME chapter uh, website, um, and that of course talks about Thomas Mann and the Calhoun report and the uh, controversies over uh, cataloging in the future. Um, all I can say is that we indeed value the expertise that catalogers bring to uh, metadata work and increase the ability, uh, findability of all that material. So when we do preservation scanning, what does that mean? Well, um, you know, you're putting a lot of content up there, you're doing a lot of high resolution scans, but that also means you're digitizing, yes, a lot of blank pages, because you're doing every page, including blank pages. Part of the, the cost of scanning, and you're preserving high resolution images, TIFF images, of those blank pages forever. Um, just to understand uh, that. Um, and we also scan, by the way, in the orientation of the material as if you were reading it. So if the material were upside down, the page would be presented to you in that same orientation. So you would need to rotate the image to preserve the physicality of the image itself. Also note, we're, when we get archival collections, we're scanning everything, including the things that most other people don't scan, um, including calling cards, slips of paper. Here's a collection notice issued to Joseph McGarity, um, and there are boxes of these. Um, uh, so what do you do with that? Well, maybe you could actually, in aggregate, accumulate that information and find out how much, how much money is being transferred from one person to another. Joseph McGarity was an Irish revolutionary. Um, you know, you might think that that little slip of paper might not be a whole lot of, uh, might not have a whole lot of information, but in aggregate, you can really get um, get some interesting information that a social scientist could use. The digital library team is organized as an integral part of special collections, um, and staff members, um, uh, again, as I mentioned, are cross-pollinated throughout other teams. We're not grant-funded. We're conceived as a regular part of library services, just like um, the technology team. This is not outside the box. This is the new library box. We have 11 staff members in the digital library, ranging in percentage of effort from 5 to 70. Most people are not um, in the 70 range. Most people are 5 to 10 percent of their time. They're doing cataloging or transcriptions. Um, we also include student workers. We have interns. And we have a number of people that are volunteering because they find this so fascinating. Um, we have people that work at the information and reference desk, and every moment that they're not helping a patron, they're volunteering doing transcriptions from works that we have in our collection. And some of it's fascinating with duels and fights and um, so. These three activities make the digital library um, outreach efforts um, a little bit more unique than um, some other digital library activities. We have partnerships, active partnerships. Uh, where we have institutional collaboration, we have partnership with the Independent Seaport Museum, with LaSalle University, um, with um, uh, the Berkshire Athenaeum in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, um, and the American Catholic Historical Society. We also have a concept called digital donation, where we have individuals collaborating and donating material to us. We scan the original. They sign a license saying we get perpetual access and can make it available under that Creative Commons license under their choice. They get a copy of the image back, which they can do with what they want, and they get their original materials back, and we make them available to scholars all around the world. That's been immensely successful. We've had numerous people that have given us 
essentially the digital rights to materials, but they get to keep the original because it's valuable or intrinsically a part of their family heritage. We also have demand-driven digitization. While we do scan things programmatically, if a scholar around the world says, I need a, a resource and I need it really soon, we're not going to put them into a queue and say, well, we can help you six months from now. We're going to scan it that day and put it at the top of the queue because our goal is to further scholarship. Um, and while we continue with programmatic efforts, the demand of users to get access to the material has to trump those programmatic needs. Uh, this is an example of one of our partnership activities um, uh, in conjunction with the Melville Marginalia Project and Pittsfield uh, Athenaeum. Um, we scanned in numerous books owned by Herman Melville. Um, and his actual copies of these books are available and digitized. And here is Melville's individual writing. And here is his signature. And that's available under our uh, Americana collection. <laughs> this is example partnership material. This is a very interesting um, uh, uh, individual donation uh, to my gentle unknown friend from Harriet Nightingale, April 30th, 1865. Those of you American history, um, my unknown gentle friend, it is presumed, is Abraham Lincoln, who visited this soldier, Henry Nightingale, on the last day of his life in the soldier's home in. Um, Washington, D.C., and he was assassinated. Let me just mention as a, sort of an outreach to this, the new biography by Burlingame, which is two volumes here, I'll just bring a book. Michael Burlingame, Abraham Lincoln, A Life. I think two volumes is enough. Um, when this letter was donated to us, I knew there was a, in the works, um, um, biography on Lincoln that was supposedly definitive. So I contacted the author and uh, he said, oh, I'd love to use it in your book, but the galleys have already gone out. I can't add that letter because it's likely that it was the first, the last um, correspondence about Lincoln. However, my publisher is putting the full manuscript online for free on their website because two volumes couldn't contain all of my notes and everything mm -hmm. else. Commentary on scholarship. So a citation to this letter is actually in the online full text copy of Abraham Lincoln A Life by Michael Burlingame. It also illustrates that sometimes you actually have to contact the publishers to market your own material um, and scholars in the area. You don't wait for them to come to you, you have to reach out and go to them with the material. So, the last day of Lincoln's life. The next letter. This is a different, from a totally different source. Digital donation searching for, it's a military order, searching for the killer of Abraham Lincoln, ordering them to stop trains in Philadelphia to search for um, John Wilkes Booth, signed, also digital donation. And also uh, another one of our uh, digitization uh, by demand, a faculty member in Germany that was researching a particular hole in a codex there um, that suspiciously looked like it might match the pages in something that's in our collection, uh, asked if we could uh, somehow get him access or provide a bibliography of this. Um, if we couldn't, he's going to fly from Germany to Villanova, to Philadelphia, to use this. That day, we scanned this in and provided scans for him. Um, and it is an August, a copy of the Augustinian uh, rule, 
And it's both in Latin and in German, which is quite unique, and it does seem to match a hole in a codex uh, in a Bavarian library. So, unfortunately, we don't have the provenance as to how it has come to our collection. Uh, perhaps after the Second World War, uh, someone may have liberated it uh, and brought it to the United States. But, at least we're able to scan it within that day and provide access to the faculty member. Here's another example of a outreach. Uh, this is a repeat. Um, a scholar who had used digital library collections from us before contacted us again, asked us if we had any photographs on Connie Noonan, Connie Neenan, who is an Irish revolutionary, and of course we did, and scanned in the image, and that appeared in a citation in Irish History Magazine for this month. Um, we've actually been contacted twice by film producers and have worked with film producers to produce content for films. We have a large Irish material with the McGarity, Joseph McGarity collection. We've actually scanned materials um, on demand by film producers to support their, their production. And we've added that to our image gallery and we have so much stuff, um, we've sort of used that as a guide as to what we should digitize because people were wanting to have access to it. And our content has been featured exclusively extensively in uh, Cromwell God's Executioner and also in another forthcoming movie. So how do users get access and find these lovely things that we've digitized? Well, they can go to Google. We're also part of Paddle, Pennsylvania Digital Library. We catalog all of our materials as well, too, in the OCLC, Registry of Digital Masters, at least these, those items that have cataloging records, and of course, uh, Oyster. So all of those are portals, as well as um, soon the library catalog, which we, as Joe mentioned, uh, plan to go from homegrown to open source at ACRL um, this coming year in 2011. So things that we're moving forward in in the future, uh, in the near future, uh, with the library, the Butyl rollout, or UDL rollout, at ACRL. Uh, we are working on transcription display, uh, and uh, <coughs> David Lacey is actually going to show you um, our prototype for that. We're going to um, be moving forward with our OCR indexing of all of our print materials, not our hand-done materials. We're also investigating uh, including film, video, and audio content so we can uh, display for the university uh, commencement exercises, records that have been found uh, from some of our past presidents from early radio shows from the 30s. Um, we plan to have full integration with Viewfind. We plan on working with one of our partners to co-curate an entire online exhibit, um, which is quite interesting. We also have, uh, using Concrete 5, which is an open source content management tool for the web, have created a, an extensive exhibits um, a tool that we can use to create online exhibits. Uh, we have not done a, a shared co-curated exhibit. That's something we're very excited about doing. Um, we're a newly member of CRA, the Catholic Research Resources Alliance, and uh, they use Viewfind as their um, gateway to their portal. Uh, we intend to more further, uh, uh, more consistently integrate with uh, their endeavors. We're also looking for new partners and digital donors. So if any of you have any interesting documents you'd like to donate to the Commons, or if you're interested in partnership activities, uh, please contact Darren Poli. Ah, so how do we market the content to people? Well, and present. Oh, no, 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 go back. That's important. 
So uh, how do we how do we deal with materials once we've been digitized? Well, uh, important things are um, spreading the word about the activities. Um, one of those is, of course, having a digital library internship and getting interns to work on materials. Our intern projects have ranged through creating an entire teacher's guide and lessons plan uh, for uh, 8 to 12 graders for the entirely digitized Sherman Thakera collection. There are lots of possibilities in the modern world to market your materials once they have been digitized. And some of these, of course, are what we would be doing right now, um, whereby materials that have been moved to the library or archives are digitized. That becomes a news event that you can write about. Um, you can also exhibit that material suddenly and have an online exhibit or a physical exhibit. Uh, it also, assuming that your cataloger interface is Web 2.0, allows your users to actually comment themselves by doing reviews or tagging for folksonomy. Um, some other interesting things just uh, out there, um, besides traditionally having documents published, you know, where you would have a publisher's advertisement, and then we would have a scholarly review and maybe citations. Now, with Web 2.0, we allow the users to put comments in, in a library catalog, thus your reviews, comments, and exhibits can all take place all at the same time. And, um, moving the, um, the, the use of material um, to the user. And also, of course, very interestingly, um, if any of you have watched the video for Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, <laughs> which is a new book that's out, um, a fictional work uh, about Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> there's a video on yes, marketing this. So the book goes forward. Who's going to preserve the video, I ask? Who's going to preserve the advertising or paratextual information about Abraham Lincoln vampire hunting for the future? Um, somebody needs to do that so that we can all laugh at this 50 years from now. So we have a blog called The Blue Electrode, Electrifying, Sparking Between Paper and Silicon, uh, that we invite people to write, uh, uh, all staff members, volunteers, and so on, to write articles, inform scholarly articles. Here's an example of one. Uh, where the Lloyd family, Thomas Lloyd's papers, some of those are kept here. I'll talk about that in just a moment. His household book um, has been digitized, but uh, the entire household book was also transcribed. And here are some excerpts from that. A cure for a burn, how to make shrewsbury cake, how to make ketchup. Um, so the actual transcription follows here. I mentioned Ward Bar, excuse me, I mentioned uh, Thomas Lloyd, whose materials are here. We actually are uh, digitizing some other Thomas Lloyd papers from uh, the American Catholic Historical Society. So not only are we scanning materials that we have owned, but also <laughs> external materials. So that's one of our selection criteria. If we can find someone else that will enhance the value of our own collections, we try to approach those people and get that content online so that we can have an archive about Thomas Lloyd. Thomas Lloyd, the founder of American Shorthand, the first stenographer of Congress, the founder of the Congressional Record. We also, by the way, go into Wikipedia and write Wikipedia articles to promote our collections, activities, our books. And then, of course, we do the name authority work, not just in the records, but in Wikipedia. Because it's important when you search for Thomas Lloyd, that you search for Thomas Lloyd and find Thomas Lloyd, the stenographer, instead of Thomas Lloyd, the pornographic actor. 
And here's the, uh, the end of the Thomas Lloyd article showing links to the Lloyd collection at Villanova and the Lloyd family collection, which are the new materials. So not only are the articles written, they're dynamic. We'll go back and change content and add content to the Wikipedia article after time, after uh, a new collection um, uh, might elucidate more information on the family or the person. So dynamically we're using Wikipedia and Wikipedia generates a significant number of incoming hits. So it is a used search tool to get, um, to get new users to our content. This is uh, the All Online Library Exhibits page and uh, currently there are two exhibits up there right now. Soon there will be a third. Uh, library exhibits are on uh, Jack Butler Yates, the brother of William Butler Yates who was an artist and uh, while we had a physical exhibit that went along with that, the digital exhibit will actually give you more content and it's up perpetually. So uh, if you miss the physical exhibit, you can always go to the online exhibit. And History Between the Pages, The Life of Samuel A. Lane. Samuel A. Lane uh, was an interesting uh, um, gentleman from Ohio that traveled um, across the country as a miner in 1849 and traveled back to Ohio a um, long way through the slave held south, through the south, excuse me. He kept a very long, autobiographical, almost 500 page manuscript of his travels, which we have had digitally donated and entirely transcribed. And this exhibit, not only providing you full text access, to the transcription, to images, also talks about Lane's place in life. Now Lane was an unknown. Not a whole lot about Lane. Now suddenly there's a whole lot of information about Lane. Lane has an incredibly witty writing style uh, reminiscent of Mark Twain. I would encourage any of you that are at all interested to look at this. This exhibit and the prior exhibit on Jack B. Yates were completely done from soup to nuts by digital library interns. Again, it's not just creativity that's passed to the library staff from Joe, but we have a climate whereby interns can actually contribute significantly to the betterment of the information commons. I'm not going to go over everything. We've um, used the Dippity Timeline software, open source software, to um, add timelines. We have had mini exhibits, and we'll be having mini exhibits to support events that are ongoing. An example of that is an exhibit that will be coming up soon. Uh, we are actually going to have the entire uh, Confessions of St. Augustine read in the library as an outreach activity on November 3rd. We're having a um, mini uh, all online exhibit as well as uh, consisting of several of the best editions of the Confessions that we have as well as a physical exhibit that will be supporting, uh, supporting that event. We have a video installation that was done. You saw that running right when we started. Again, we hope that's viral and communicable as well too. Uh, posters. The brochure that you see for digital library activity, all done from professional designers. Um, and we have integrated web banner advertising for all digital library activities and exhibits as well, too. This is an example for uh, the current um, exhibit right now, Ramble Sketches uh, Tours, Travelers and Tourism in Ireland, which you see in the cases right next to you. There's an all online exhibit uh, that will be going up that will actually be more extensive than that that will be online very soon. So, that's the second part, and I will talk fast for the last part. What ought we to do uh, in this environment? Well, we should collaborate. We should take the cost to zero for the user, 
uh, to use material. We should become transparent in our activities and our communications with professionals. And we should create open, creative, and dynamic workplaces where things like this can happen. And if you don't, you're failing as a librarian or as an archivist. <laughs> Take the cost to zero, for example. Again, I'm up on my soapbox here. RDA, not the whether RDA is good or bad. Does everyone know what RDA is? Why is RDA costing something to get access to? Why? Uh, is not the Library of Congress involved? Is it not being distributed on Catalogger's desktop? Why is anybody pay for this? At all, anyone. I, I ask you, it should cost zero. First of all, it should cost zero because if you really want anyone to use it, you've got to reduce the cost to zero. We're not doing that. We're, we're actually costing people and institutions and small institutions that refuse to adapt or, or won't ever adapt RDA because it's going to cost them to get access to catalogers' desktop, which is crazy. Why should that happen? Why should the government, the United States government, be charging access to RDA, especially when professional dues have created this rule set? You also see in your um, handouts there something that's kind of interesting. And I'm not going to pick on Wisconsin here, but I'm going to pick on Wisconsin's Historical Society. They charge reproduction fees and also publication fees. Many institutions do this. This is a heinous practice, in my opinion. Cost recovery, yes. But why, why incredibly charge these kind of costs? If you look at what they call speedy turnaround time, at 15 days to turn around a digital print, they're going to charge you double. And it goes up if you want it even faster. Crazy. It's a not-for-profit. They're, they're actually trying to get money. Harvard is notorious for this. I'm bashing an Ivy here. Harvard is notorious for this. Why would they ever charge to use their materials? Do they need their endowment grown even more? I don't understand why they would do this. If they want their material to be used, they should reduce the cost to zero. And that is why our material gets used and theirs won't, if we have the same equivalent material online as well. And, if I might add, this drives usage. Again, you get repeat business. If we're in the business of providing access to materials, we should make it as easy and as cheap to use as possible. Not to continue to bash the big, but at one Ivy League school, which I won't not name, they said that they had to have four committees to approve any particular item to be digitized, and it would take over a year to have all of those committees meet and approve. One item. One item. So that whole demand drives digitization model goes into the trash can if you have to wait a year to be able to have that. Um, so that leads me uh, to this article, which is by Robert Darton, which just came out last week. Can we create a national digital library that is comprehensive library of digitized books that will be easily accessible to the general public? It's a great uh, idea. Um, you know, that we're not going to follow in Google's footsteps, we're not going to rely on Google, we're going to build our own national digital library. But, if I may, this piece is based on a talk given at the opening of an off-the-record conference at Harvard. Why are we not being transparent here? Why are we just having the large institutions at, an inst at, at Harvard sitting around talking about how our digital future is going to manifest itself? Why are they not being transparent? In a way, in a, in a, when we can put viral or communicable video online, why can't Harvard, especially with something of that national importance? 
So my thesis here is maybe technology and innovation and information organizations doesn't scale and bigger institutions are not necessarily the places that really are very creative and or efficient. Maybe red, red tape and centralizing tendencies are actually counterproductive to both creativity and efficiency. A lot of institutions continue to scan in low resolution and in bitonal format. A lot of institutions are continuing to scan from old micro. And we're continuing to buy bad scans from vendors. Sean Martin. More and more scholars and librarians alike have feared that students believe the electronic copy in EBO, which is in fact a copy of a copy of a copy somewhere in a library, is replacing the original book. In some ways, this fear is genuine. Many errors were introduced during the microfilm process and were compounded as that process shifted to digital. Um, this is the whole Nicholson-Baker um, article, uh, uh, thesis in Doublefold, about uh, the problems in micro. We don't want to recreate those same problems by scanning in um, in low-resolution format materials. We want to actually do it in high resolution and make them accessible in perpetuity. Um, you know, Hathi Trust is great. They're relying upon Google scans, however, which were done um, in perhaps a non-professional manner with fingers and uh, uh, illegibility and so on. So, another fumble perhaps. Pascal is just starting to talk about collaborative digitization. Why? Why? We've been doing this for five years. Why, why is Pascal just starting to talk about this? I, I, I ask you, you know, um, our, our, and that's a collaborative venture, so I'm not, I'm not discounting that, but, you know, we need to act and, and act soon and act in a collaborative, transparent manner. There are new forms of publications that are out there. They're creating challenges that we have to deal with right now. We've got books with web content, for example, Lincoln there. We've got virtual books. We've got journals with totally non-print content. Any of you have seen the Journal of Visualized Experiments, Joe, which is an all-video journal of video experiment of experimental biological research. Really interesting. Uh, Power Library is going to handle digitization and preservation of that in the future. It's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting situation. <laughs> a philosophical biography of Friedrich Nietzsche. Seventeen of Nietzsche's musical compositions, together with a commentary, are available on the book's website. Who's going to preserve the music of Frederick Nietzsche? There wasn't a CD in the book, but it's on an ancillary website, a publisher's website. Who's going to make that accessible and preserve that for the future? How are we going to wrestle with those paratextual materials? And there are numerous books that have that kind of paratextual material as well, too. Talk is a very interesting uh, <coughs> new novel, uh, a multimedia novel. It's not on a, not on a disc. Um, it's put out by University of Alabama Press, uh, another example. The digital book is really here. You can't actually read this. It's impossible. Um, it, it's uh, www.tocthenovel.com, and there are clips online. Interestingly enough, it starts out um, the novel, um, which is a multimedia interaction with text, with a quote from St. Augustine. Again, St. Augustine, very interesting there with the local connection. But 
the, the future is now. We have to wrestle with changing immutable book form. None of those alternatives can be read in paper in their fullness. Um, before I thank everyone, one other thing I, I wanted to mention um, on the cataloging um, diatribe that I had. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a cataloging and publication, CIP, in there. It's a very long CIP, if you take a look at that. It has 27 subject headings, most artfully done. So just as an example, there is uh, the cataloging and publication as art form, but also highlights the innovative use and assignment of subject headings that's going on. That sort of uh, falls with the, the, the uh, scholarship and um, the need to continually describe and make accessible materials. And all of those are valid subject headings. Um, quite, quite interesting. So I'd like to thank everybody that sat through this long, long um, so, as Michael said, uh, thank you for the nice introduction. Um, I'm Laura Bang, and I'm Special and Digital Collections Curatorial Assistant here. Um, so, reaching for the treetops, I'm going to be talking about some of the digital library projects that we've been working on. Um, the main projects that I'm talking about you can find on our digital library under the Villanova Digital Collection. And the first one is our Arboriana project. Um, and this is photographing and cataloging the trees on Villanova's campus. Um, Villanova in 1992 became an official arboretum. They no longer have official arboretum status, but they do still have all of these lovely trees. Um, I love photography and I love trees, so uh, this seemed like a wonderful thing to do. Um, and also, Michael had mentioned that there was an institution that cataloged a meteor. I don't remember what the institution Lehigh. was. Lehigh. Lehigh. Lehigh cataloged a meteor. It's the largest <laughs> item in OCLC. Book in hand is 44 kilometers in length. <laughs> <laughs> so, going, thinking, thinking outside the book, as it were. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I've been going around and photographing. Um, trees on campus. I think I've only managed to get about two dozen so far, um, but it's only me doing the photography and um, there's all kinds of factors involved. Um, my ability to get outside and actually take the photographs um, and that also depends of course on the weather. Um, so I take all the photographs in when it's nice outside, um, sunny, so that there's natural light. Um, and we have a uh, digital SLR camera. I, uh, I take the photographs in the, um, it's a Canon, so I take it in the Canon RAW format and then convert them to TIFF to upload into our um, collections here. Um, I get the information, but uh, right now I'm just focusing on ca um, cataloging the trees that already have um, signs on them from when the university was an arboretum. Um, and that has the common name and the scientific name, and sometimes there's a dedication or another note of some kind. Um, so right now I'm just going by those trees. So I have a start as to what kind of tree it is, because I'm actually not an expert. I do love trees, but I can only recognize a few of them. And um, so that's another fun thing, is I'm starting to be able to recognize more trees. Um, so uh, we're... So I start with the sign, but I also double check that information because I'm a librarian and I like to make sure my information is accurate. Um, so I um, included in the collection 
um, description, some of the sources that I used. So the USDA plants database, a tree called the Sibley Guide, to, uh, I mean a book called the Sibley Guide to Trees, um, and a couple other online databases and Wikipedia. Um, and then um, I'm taking the pictures of the trees in each season. So um, I've divided the collection by season, um, and we also have a sub-collection for historical information about the Arboretum, which um, just includes a few things right now. Um, a newsletter that we found in our old um, library reference files, and a map of the Arboretum. And so this is one of the trees. Um, this is an American yellowwood, um, and I take a minimum of five photos of each tree, um, two full views. Um, I try to get them from opposite sides if I can, but the trees were planted to look pretty and not to be easily photographed. So um, if I can't get opposite sides, then I just try to do as close to opposite as I can. Um, and then I do at least three details, um, detail of the bark, a detail of the foliage, and then a detailed photo of the sign so that we know what the tree is. Um, and then if there's anything else interesting about the tree, um, depending on the season, um, it might be flowering, so I'll take a photo of the flowers um, or fruit um, seed pods or that sort of interesting things. Um, and then this one um, has a damaged bit of the trunk, so I took a photo of that as well. Um, and then for the metadata, um, it's fairly simple. It's not complex because, um, as I said, I'm not actually a tree expert. Um, and I'm going off what other databases are telling me. So this is just documenting our trees. It's not helping people identify them or um, adding any substantial information to the uh, tree knowledge in the world. Um, so I, I have the common name. Um, and this this tree is actually an instance where the sign was not entirely accurate um, attached to the tree, so it identifies it as American yellowwood. It's also known as uh, Kentucky yellowwood, um, and so the scientific name um, on our sign um, had it as, and I can't do Latin, so I'm sure I'll mutilate it, but Cladrastis lutea. Um, but the actual, when I went to the USDA plants database, the authorized um, scientific name, as it were, was Clodrastrus Kentuke. So um, that was an interesting find. Um, and then the the family that the tree belongs to, the form is what season it is, um, because our uh, digital library is searchable by Google, so people might not be coming from the collection path, so they might not know that they've clicked through to trees in autumn. Um, so just another way so that you know what you're looking at. Um, and then the tree ID, the signs also have a, an ID number from when, it, from when the university was an arboretum. Um, so that's there um, and that's to help me keep track of the trees because we do have more than one um, tree for each species. So um, I also include the tree ID number in the uh, heading of the tree so that we can differentiate between trees of the same species. Um, and then the location, um, a physical description of the location for people who are familiar with the campus or have a campus map. And then also the latitude and longitude coordinates taken from Google Maps 
So they're not entirely accurate coordinates. It's me um, pinpointing the location on a Google map and trying to um, extract the coordinates from there, but it'll get you within a few feet um, so you can find it. Um, then I'm also creating a Google map um, for a visual um, placement of the trees. Uh, so I have a little bit of a description about the project um, and then uh, the, uh, the trees down the list of trees down here which are um, just organized alphabetically by their common name because I figure that's easiest for most people and then again their tree ID number um, since there are more than one um, then uh, this is the uh, American Yellowwood it's the one of the ones that I've actually managed to get in three seasons so far so I have a thumbnail photo of one of one of the um, full views of the tree and then links to photos in spring summer and autumn and eventually winter um, and then I also included a little information place marker for our digital library um, <laughs> and included a link to the digital library. Um, if you um, click on that to get the little pop-up window, then you get a link to the digital library and a direct link to the Arboriana collection. So that's the trees. Um, and then another um, much easier to do collection uh, was the sculpture collection, which I actually made as a sub-collection of Villanova art um, in case we ever do want to document any other forms of art on campus. Um, there were 13 sculptures that I found. Um, they're just the sculptures that I found. Um, actually, uh, 12 of them are documented on a separate Villanova webpage. Um, so I was able to find them using that, the ones that um, are not obviously on um, on the main walkways or whatever. And then Michael happened to see another one on his way in one day and he pointed it out to me so I found that one. Um, so um, the sculptures, there's not a lot of information about them so they have much simpler metadata. Um, they're also um, works of art so they actually do fit with our um, standard metadata. The, um, all the tree metadata um, is not standard metadata, so um, I'm sticking all of that in a description field um, by itself rather than trying to figure out how to fit it into the standards that we follow. Um, so for the sculptures, um, this is a, uh, the page for what we call the Oreo. Um, its official name is Awakening. Um, <laughs> and so this one, um, I just took the four full views um, from each side <coughs> and then a photograph of the sign. This one actually has a sign. Most of the sculptures don't have signs, so I don't actually know who sculpted them um, or what their official name is. Um, in that case, I just went with what I found on the other um, Villanova webpage that told me about it, but usually that just gave a title and not any information about the sculptor. So it's incomplete information, but it's what we have. Um, and so for the Oreo, I, I um, made a note about the alternate title. Um, referred to on campus as the Oreo, and then a, another location, um, physical um, 
description and then the latitude and longitude coordinates again from Google Maps. Um, I did not create a Google Map for the sculptures because there's not really that many of them. Um, if we were to do other art projects, I might do another Google Map for that, but for now it's just Google Maps for the trees. Um, what I did do though was um, create a photosynth of, um, and I've only done one for the Oreo so far. Um, it's a 3D photo environment created by Microsoft, um, powered by Silverlight. Um, it was having technical difficulties when I checked it this morning. So I'm not going to try it now. Um, and also I don't know if Silverlight is installed on this computer. That's um, a problem with it. It is fun. Um, it, uh, you take a bunch of photos of the object. Um, in this case, I took 72 photographs of the Oreo um, from all around it, various angles um, and distance from the object. Um, and then uh, the Photosynth software compiles it all together for you and creates a 3D environment that you can um, play around with and look at close up the um, statue and details of it and stuff. But it is Microsoft and it's proprietary, so it's fun, but it's not high priority because we don't have control over it. Um, <laughs> uh, also, um, I haven't been able to figure out a way that you can like actually embed it on your site. Um, so you can only provide a link to the Microsoft website. I think there is a way that you can um, embed it into a um, Microsoft's version of Google Maps, which is Bing Maps, um, but I haven't done that because, again, not a high priority since it is pr proprietary. Um, so the other thing that I've started, um, I started a Flickr account for us. Um, I started that in June, so that's only been going for about four months. Um, it has 113 items right now, um, and it's not, you know, it's not a huge success. We're not getting um, all of the uh, interaction that like the Library of Congress Flickr account does. Um, so I, I did leave it open where people can leave notes and tags um, to the photos um, and that sort of thing, but no one has actually done any of that yet. But we do get some hits. Um, it's got, it says here that it has 130 views. I think those are page views for the entire account. Um, and then there's also view counts for each photo. Um, our most popular photos so far are from um, the uh, of Philadelphia regional stuff, um, and those have about like 30 hits each. Um, so I created some photo sets on Flickr that sort of mirror our digital library collections. Um, the important ones, um, Villanova, because I want to highlight that that's who we are. Um, Catholic and Augustinian collections because that's again important part of who we are. Um, Irish and Irish American history, um, um, which I just gave that name. It's actually from all from the Joseph McGarity collection, but that's a more easily accessible name for people just wandering in. Um, and then Pennsylvania history because that's local to us. Um, miscellaneous stuff um, for um, images from our smaller collections, um, manuscripts um, and other smaller collections like that, um, and then two unique sets, um, 
adverts and scenes. Um, scenes is um, just photos that I take um, while I'm out photographing trees and I see other interesting things on campus because I like photography and so I take a picture um, and I upload that there. It doesn't fit into any of our proper um, collections but um, this gives us a place to put it and then we have some Flickr exclusive content. Um, and then the adverts is just something that I created um, because looking through some of the old books that we have, they have some really interesting advertisements. Um, and so I just have pulled some that struck me as particularly interesting, funny, or noteworthy for some reason, and starting a collection of those to highlight those. Um, so um, it, it's, it's a lot of fun to um, go through our collection and um, pick images for the Flickr account. Um, it helps me interact with our collection more, um, just going through, picking a random book, looking through for interesting images um, and it highlights images that people might not find otherwise if they um, are not going through an entire book page by page. So it's another point of access for us. Um, and then this is um, an example of an image and the um, metadata that I include for it on Flickr which is just the source for the book, the call number, and the uh, link to the full item in the digital library. And they're all, of course, under a Creative Commons license. Um, and then uh, this is a blog post that I made about Flickr. Um, Michael already talked about the blog and we're running out of time, so I'll just skip over that. And then um, preview of uh, the newest online exhibit, which is about 90% done right now, so hopefully it should be done by the end of the week. Um, and then finally, be creative. Um, do something that you love. Um, as I said, I love photography and I love trees, so it's really exciting to be able to do that as part of my job. It's also really fun to do something that makes your colleagues jealous. Um, so when I was starting out my tree project in late May, early June, um, really gorgeous weather, and I'm, I'm going outside to take some photographs of trees, and people were like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> um, uh, I think they'll probably be less jealous when I'm taking photographs of trees in winter, but um, <laughs> still, so be creative and have fun. And so um, that's all that I have to say. Um, I'm also going to be giving a quick tour of our scanning lab, but I'll um, invite Joe and Michael back up first, and um, you guys can ask us questions. <laughs>